both economically and where we're going. And I'll just give you a little heads up. We haven't seen anything yet. As bad as things are, and we just got word today that um, my brother-in-law was laid off, and my baby sister might also lose her job, and they're both in the same family. Uh, this is happening across the globe. It's happening everywhere. Uh, we have just, I'm going to tell you right now, you've just seen the beginning, and I'll show you scripture a little, little bit of that tonight. So be paying attention closely to the, to the basics that Paul's going to be dealing with here about faith or salvation. But you need to understand that once you grasp that, it's going to also be very helpful for you as to how to have faith in living in the chaos of the days to come. All right? So, and... Um, there you go. The Chesters. The Chesters. Greg? Is it Greg? Yes. Yeah. Right. And, and, and a couple that I said last week that they were coming. Yeah. And we, Good deal. Good deal. Yeah. Hey, 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 we got them right there. You heard I was long-winded and figured I'd probably still be going. Alright, somebody read for us uh, chapter 4, verses 1, 2, and 3, whoever wants to. What then shall we say that Abraham, our forefather, discovered in this matter? In fact, Abraham was justified by words. Nope. If. If Abraham was justified. If, in fact, Abraham was justified by words. He had something to boast about, but not before God. What does the scripture say? Abraham believed God, and it was credited to him as righteousness. All right, now remember where we've left off. Uh, Paul's been laying out the foundation that everyone is guilty before God uh, because of sin. It doesn't matter if you're a Jew or a Gentile. Uh, Everybody's guilty before God. And he then has been starting to lay the foundation that Abraham was given righteousness not because of what he did. Remember, the Jews believed if they were righteous or kept the law or did the sacrifices, all these kind of things, that that's going to earn them points before God. And Jesus, remember, when he came on the scene came and said, look, if you're keeping the law, let me just clarify for you whether or not you are. It said don't commit adultery, but I say to you that if you even lustfully look after a woman, you've committed adultery. And you can imagine these people going, huh, wait a minute, I thought I was doing pretty good. You know, that's impossible. And that's the whole point, is Jesus is trying to get across to them, you're not righteous when you think you are. You know, remember, John the Baptist came on the scene, prepared the way for the Messiah. What was his message? Repent. Repent. You've got to repent before you can even be ready to be a part of what God's going to do next. A lot of people in the Jewish system, especially the higher-ups who thought they were righteous, repentance, what's that? That's for the people that are sinners. Tax collectors, the sinners, the prostitutes, we're righteous. We tie about our mint and our cumin, as, as they would say, and these types of things. So Paul has just been laying this foundation that everyone's guilty. And then he starts and says here, look closely, you know, Abraham wasn't justified by works, but by what? Now, put a bookmark here. Go back to Genesis chapter 15. He quotes from Genesis chapter 15, verse 6. We're going to look at uh, verses 1 through 6. And then we're going to look at something interesting in in verses 7 and following. In Genesis chapter 15, now remember back, we saw in chapter 12, that God told me he was going to be a mighty nation and all that. At the time, he had no children. It's kind of hard to be a mighty nation if you're about to die and you've got no children. But now at this point, so many years later, the word of the Lord came to Abram in a vision. Do not be afraid, Abram. I am your shield, your very great reward. But Abram said, O sovereign Lord, what can you give me since I remain childless and the one who will inherit my estate is Eliezer of Damascus? And Abram said, You have given me no children, so a servant in my household will be my heir. 
And then the word of the Lord came to him, This man will not be your heir, but a son coming from your own body will be your heir. He took him outside and said, Look up at the heavens and count the stars, if indeed you can count them. Then he said to him, So shall your offspring be. Now, you've got to keep in mind the, the situation here. How old is Abram roughly at this time? He's in his 90s. Yeah, he's in his 90s. And his wife, right up there with him. Alright? Now God, at this point, he's had no children. And it's pretty much, and you're about to see as we keep reading in a little bit, pretty much impossible to have children at this time. And God says, from your own body a child is going to come. And you go out there and look at the stars. Now keep in mind, back then they didn't have the cities with big lights. So if you ever get out where there's no light and really look at the stars, you'll find there's a lot more than you ever could imagine. It, it's just, it is. It's just... It's amazing to see how many stars we can see with the naked eye. He said, if you could count those, that's how many descendants you're going to have. And what did Abraham do? <laughs> he believed. And what did God do? Now look closely. Look, what's the word that they use? Credited. Credited to them. All right. Now if something is credited to you, they put it on your account, correct? They put it on your account. Abraham was given righteousness in the eyes of God. If God is looking around and see who on the earth is righteous, at this point we know now Abraham, he can be looked at and declared righteous. Why? Because he believed God. And God gave it to him as a gift. Now, the very interesting thing happens, and I've never heard anybody even talk about what happens next. Look at the very next verse. Right after he credited to him as righteousness, God also said to him, I am the Lord who brought you out of the earth of the Chaldeans to give you this land to take possession of it. But Abram said, O sovereign Lord, how can I know that I'll gain possession of it? He goes straight from believing the word of God to doubting the word of God. Now, this is this hopefully is an encouragement to you. Alright? I'm going to ask you a, a tough question though. Did he lose his righteousness? No. No. He doesn't lose his righteousness now because now he doubted it. Once, the Romans 11.29 says God's gifts and His call are irrevocable. When God gives you His gift, He will not take it back. And the salvation is a gift. Alright? Now, in this instance here though, it's wonderful to see that even though Abraham had faith in this one area, he doubted in another area. Everybody ever been there? Everybody ever been there today? <laughs> we all have, right? Couple hours ago. Yeah, a couple hours ago. What I want you to see, and this is very important, is where we're going next. And by the end of the lesson tonight, you're going to have good days. You're going to have bad days. Now we're not going to take the time to read the story because of so much we need to cover tonight. But if you take the time and finish reading what happens next, Abraham doubts whether or not, and or just questions, how will I know that what you're saying is true? And God has him go and take these animals and kill them. One on this, and cut them in half. One half of the body on this half side, half on this side, half of this animal on this half, and so on. And he makes like a path, if you will, between the dead animals, the birds, you put the dead one here and the dead one there. Now, what this was, was actually a, it was a covenant kind of a practice they used to do. If, if Ken and I made a deal, we didn't have contracts and lawyers and stuff like that back then, so what we would do is we would make a covenant with each other. I'm going to do my end of the bargain, you're going to do yours. Now, what we would do to seal the covenant was we would cut animals in half and leave the bloody bodies on each side, and then symbolically, I would walk between the pieces 
and come around and walk back between the pieces, symbolically saying the same thing happens to me as it happened to these animals if I don't keep my end of the bargain. And then you would walk between the pieces to say the same thing happened to me if I don't keep my end of the bargain. And that's how you signed or sealed the covenant back then with these guys. So God has Abram put these animals down. And then if you were to go read, an awesome thing happens. He puts Abraham into a kind of twilight sleep. And then all of a sudden, God walks between the pieces. Now you've got to let that sink in for a minute. See, God is God. He doesn't have to say, I swear to tell the truth, there's God's honor. You know what I'm saying? He doesn't have to say, honest to God. He, 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 he is God. Okay? If he said it, it is true. Yet, he knew Abram's was Abram's dust. He knew his weakness, if you will. And lovingly and humbly, God says, same thing happened to me if I don't keep my hand to the bargain. Not cool. And he didn't make Abram walk through. Because there was no end to the bargain there. It was all God. I'm going to give you this land. Now folks, I want you to grasp this. There are going to be times in your life where you're doubting. Might not be your salvation. Hopefully you get that salvation now and put on tight. But there's other things. There's nothing wrong with, in the midst of your struggle, getting serious before God and saying, I need a touch. I need you to do something that only I will know that it's you. You ever talk about the rainbow? We get the promise of the rainbow, but it was really for Noah. See, it had never rained before. And the first time it ever rains, the whole earth is flooded and everybody's wiped out. How many of you have ever been in a car accident? Alright? Do you remember coming to that same intersection again? Or that same situation, or there was icy or rainy or whatever it was? Remember what thoughts go through your head? It's like that instant fear. I can guarantee you that God knew full well the next time a cloud came and a thunderbolt were cracked, Noah would be packing the family up in the nearest boat. But God knew that Noah needed a promise. I will never do that again. I'll never do that again. Every time you see the rainbow in the clouds, because that's when it comes out, is when there's a little bit of rain and a little bit of sun. Whenever you see that, that's my promise to you, Noah, and to everybody else that follows, that I'll never flood the whole earth ever again. All the way through, you'll see times when God specially touches people in a way in which they know He's there. There's nothing wrong with saying it. I need you to walk between the pieces in some way for me. Go ahead. You know, Terry, that's right. Mm-hmm. I think it was the first time this wife had shit cancer a year or so ago that she asked God for sign before she went in for the first chemo, and that's exactly what he did for her. He gave her the beautiful rainbow. She had asked, and fortunately she shared it with a number of us, but he gave her the rainbow because she just felt filled and, and courageous. There was a time in my life back, we're talking 20 years ago, uh, where I was, uh, this was right before Becky and I got married, and uh, I was associate pastor of a church in New Orleans, and going through one of those times where I wondered if God knew I even was there in New Orleans. You ever been there? You wonder if God even knows where you are? I remember even though I was on staff at this church, 
I was actually, no one was there to run sound that Sunday. The sanctuary sat 1500, but the balcony only was just for the sound. There was no, all the seats were on the floor. And so if you're on the sound, you're up in the back of this big sanctuary all by yourself. It says no one was there to run sound that day. I basically told me to run up and make sure the preacher's microphone stayed on. I didn't know what to do with the Lord, but, you know, come on, Chris. But, um, <laughs> but, uh, but I, uh, uh, he actually runs sound. He does really good. <laughs> but, uh, I sat up there in the balcony that Sunday and, and I prayed this prayer during the 830 service. Lord, I need to know if you even know I'm here. That's what I prayed. I need a touch from you and I'm going to spend today looking for your touch. That, I, that you know, that you let me know that you know where I'm here. All through the service, I'm paying attention, but it's a sign from God. Nothing. Sunday school. I go and teach Sunday school. I'll teach in Sunday school. I'm looking for this sign from God. Nothing. Second service, 11 o'clock service. I'm looking for my staff. That's the big service. You know, that's one God's way to show up on anyway. Because they have choir. They have choir instead of the praise team. So then, then that's the real big service that God's going to work here. And there was uh, no sign from God that he knew I was there. Went to lunch. Went and took my nap, because that's what you're supposed to do on Sundays. And uh, after that, went to discipleship training, and I was teaching experiencing God. And I figured, oh, experiencing God, this is what you're saying. You know? Nothing. As I'm leaving discipleship training to go into the worship service, there's a weird old gentleman. I can't remember his name. Adolf Crowell. I just remember his name. Adolf Crowell. Just, I'll be honest with you, he's in heaven. And I can't wait to find out what he's like normal. I really, I feel like he's just an interesting, interesting man, all right? And he gives me these two big pieces of, I'm assuming they were fruit. I didn't even know what they were. And I said, what are these? He goes, they're persimmons. They were huge. I don't know what a persimmon is. I've never had a persimmon. I said, well, thank you. Went and put them on my desk. Went to church looking for my sign from God. I'm getting a little anxious at this point. Because, God, I asked you earlier this morning, and I've given you lots of opportunities. <laughs> no sign from God. I go home, and I go to my dorm in seminary at the time. I was living in the singles dorm, and I'm laying in the bed, and God said, I'm a little discouraged. Because I had asked God for a sign that he knew I was there. And then I go to sleep, and the phone rings about 11, 11.30 at night. And the phone call was from Dan Julek. Now, for those who don't know, Dan Julek was um, a, a youth in the youth group when I was youth pastor at First Baptist in the Atlantic. At this point, he was uh, at Palm Beach Atlantic uh, University there, and, and he was getting his undergraduate degree. He called me at 11.30, and this is what he said. He said, Jim, I needed to talk to somebody because I'm wondering right now if God even knows that I'm here. And then all of a sudden, it clicked. I said, Dan, you won't believe what happened today. He goes, what? I go, this man gave me two of the biggest persimmons I've ever seen in my life. And Dan starts to weep. Now, this makes no sense to any of you. But what I want you to understand is, is back when I was youth pastor, Dan and I used to play a game. His, his brother had just committed suicide not long before that. And Dan just was lonely and struggling. And he hung around me like, like a puppy dog. Dan and I have been close. He's lived with us when I lived in Chicago. Dan and I have been tight for years, still are. But we played a game every, every day where we come up with a new word. And you had to use the word in regular conversation and you got a point every time, but we pick weird words, you know, one week it was boy howdy or something, and every time you said boy howdy and nobody caught on what was going on, you got a point. Well, one day we chose the word persimmon, and it's very hard to use the word persimmon in regular conversation. It became so much fun that that became the permanent word the rest of the summer, was persimmon. 
And to God, do you know I'm here? This man is the two biggest for One for me, and one for Dan. And then the other for Simon calls up and says, I don't even know if God even knows I'm here. He cares about you. Satan will try everything to say that he doesn't. Don't let circumstances take that away from you. And if you are willing to be still and to listen and to look, and you ask, he knows you're dust. He knows you're weak. He will do it. He will do it. He believed God, and God gave him righteousness. The next verse, he says, are you sure? <laughs> I like that. I'll be honest with you. I like that. Because I'm that way too. I'm that way too. Back to Romans chapter 4. Three, three verses uh, 4 through 8. I can't because my eyes are a little blurry right now. So. Now when a man's work, his wages are not credited to him as a gift, but as an obligation. However, the man who does not work but trusts God is justified in the wicked. His faith is credited as righteousness. David says the same thing when he speaks of the blessedness of the man to whom God credits righteousness apart from works. Blessed are they whose transgressions are forgiven, whose sins are covered. Blessed is the man whose sin the Lord will never count against Alright, Satan is out there trying to convince everybody that in order to get to heaven, we've got to be good. Right? got to be a good person. But that's not what happens. And he says, look, when a man works, his wages aren't a gift. You know, hopefully, when you went to your employer on payday, he didn't say, I'm going to give you a gift today. He might have if he was nuts, but you would have laughed at him and said, there's no gift. I worked for these. You know, I've earned this, right? Go real quick to Romans chapter 6. Someone read verse 23. Most would be quoted. But look at what look at what the scripture says there. Someone read verse twenty three. For the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. Now remember, you work for your wages, you earn your wages, right? We earn death. That we did earn. But salvation is what? Is it earned? Credit. Our sin is free gift of God. It's a gift, it's a, I like that. It's a free gift of God. Salvation is a gift. Now, most of us, if not all of us, are sitting here going, okay, yeah, I got it. Folks, I'm going to burn it into your brains because it's going to be very important when we, where we're headed tonight. All right? Now, Paul's doing the same thing. He is laying this foundation over and over. But Abraham was given righteousness as a gift. It was credited to his account. God looked at him as righteous, not because of anything, but because he believed God. God said it, I believe it, God gave him righteousness. Alright? Now, verse 9, is this blessedness only for the circumcised, or the Jews, or also for the uncircumcised? We have been saying that Abraham's faith was credited, credited to him as righteousness. Under what circumstances was it credited? Was it after he was circumcised, or before? Now, he answers his own question. It wasn't after, but before. And he received the sign of circumcision, a seal of righteousness, that he had by faith while he was still uncircumcised. So then he's the father of all who believe but have not been circumcised in order that the righteousness might be credited to them. And he's also the father of the circumcised who not only are circumcised but who also walk in the footsteps of the faith that our father Abraham Abraham had before he was circumcised. Does anybody know what chapter in Genesis Abraham was circumcised? 
chapter 17. Remember in Genesis 15, God gives him righteousness. It isn't until chapter 17 that God tells him to be circumcised. He hasn't had, his, uh, hasn't had Isaac yet. Isaac's not born until chapter 18. But at chapter 17, God says, get ready, it's coming, it's going to happen soon, and you're going to be the father of, it's very interesting how he puts it, many nations. See, the Jews were all proudly saying, Abraham is our father. We are descendants of Abraham. And yes, they were. That's where the nation of Israel came from. God took Abraham, took him away from his people and his land, and said, I'm going to start a whole new nation with you, and I'm going to bring my glory and my plan and work my workings through you on the earth. And he's finishing up with that in these last days and weeks and months that are coming and years that are left on the earth. It's all tied in with what's going to happen with the nation of Israel. But at the same time, God said, you're going to also not only be the father of the Jews, you're going to be father of many nations because of the fact that all who believe God in faith, that he will give them righteousness as a gift, not counting their sins against them, as we just read David talk about, those become children of Abraham too, because we are people who have been given righteousness by faith. Okay? Go ahead. He's the father of Ishmael as well, but that wasn't God, part of God's yeah. cause. That yeah. did happen. Still father of nations. Definitely father of nations in that sense. But God was, right, the nations of the blessing that he was talking about was something different. But yet he did become, and that's, again, we see God uh, still use people that are flawed. You know, he uses people that are flawed. And in chapter 15, we see he's given righteousness. Chapter 17, he's circumcised. Chapter 18, the uh, child of promise is born. But in chapter 16, he sleeps with Hagar, Sarah's servant helps to help God make this baby and that baby then made a bunch of other nations and right now they're fighting against the nation of Israel as we speak and uh, the consequences of that but the good news is, is God didn't say you blew it he'll take all things and cause them to work for good even the stuff we don't do or do that he doesn't want us to do kind of a thing but again what we want you to understand is pretty much that well, the, the children of Abraham are the Jews actually the Bible here clearly says not just the Jews but actually, not even to the Jews, but only the Jews who believe, who have been given righteousness. All right? Now, somebody read verses 13 through 17. The promise to Abraham, or to his descendants, that he would be heir of the world was not through the law, but through the righteousness of faith. Over to 17. For if those who are of the law are heirs, faith is made void, and the promise is nullified. For the law brings about wrath, but where there is no law, neither is there violation. For this reason it is by faith, and that it may might be in accordance with grace, in order that the promise may be certain to all the descendants, not only to those who are of the law, but also those who are of faith in Abraham, who is the father of us all. As it is written, a father of many nations have I made you, in the sight of him who believes, even God, who gives life to the dead and calls into being that which does not exist. All right. Now, in this section, again, he's just reiterating again. I just say, stick with me. It's basic. He's re- just burning it into our brains, but it's going to be important. It's not through law or effort, if you will, or your works, that they, or, or his works, Abraham was, uh, received his promise that he be heir of the world, but through the righteousness that comes by faith. All right? Now, look at what he says, though, at the very end here. Look at, we're going to start in verse 17. As it is written, God says, I have made you a father of many nations, he is our Father in the sight of God, in whom he believed, the God who gives life to the dead and calls things that are not as though they were. 
Somebody try and paraphrase that for me. What does it mean when he says, God calls things as that are not as though they were? Translation actually reads, calls into being that which does not exist. Okay, calls into being that which does not exist. Okay, both put those together. What's another way we could talk about this? This is going to be the first step toward where we're going tonight. You've got to get this. We're not going to rush over this part. Miracles are definitely involved in what we're talking about here. We can definitely say we don't know the mind of God at times. I mean, the Bible says we have the mind of Christ and He will reveal His will at times to us. That's involved in it partially. I'm going to give you a word that might help you. Uh, throw the word impossible into your definition somewhere. Again, how old is Abraham? Yeah, by the time he gives birth to 100. Sarah's in her 90s. They don't have Viagra back then. We're looking at, we're, let's be honest, it's an impossibility. Right? For Abraham and Sarah to make a baby, it's impossible. But if God says it will happen, He calls things that are not as though they are. He'll bring, in, as his translation said, into existence things that don't exist. Now, something out of nothing. He makes something out of nothing. That's good, Ken. Stick with that. Folks, I'm telling you, you've got to get this to stick in your head because you're going to need this to live as people of faith in the days to come if Jesus tarries and doesn't come and get us soon. So nothing is impossible for God. Nothing is impossible for God. We can quote this, but I'll be honest with you, I see very, very few Christians today living by this truth. Because most of our churches today, most of our people who are Christians in their home life, live by what we can see. We're right now panicking, and where can I put my money that's the most safe? I've got to be responsible. I've got to do. God will bless it if I do my part. God helps those who help themselves. And we stopped living by faith in what he has said. So Jim, yes. I just have a little testimony. Mm-hmm. And I was sharing with early earlier. I have worked fourteen years as a nurse, always with an agency, doing home care. I've now moved in with a lady because I need to, but it's also a job and so I'm being paid to stay with her. I have never had a vacation in all the years I've been a nurse. They have just paid me for two weeks vacation. I've been at Debbie's. It has been a joyous time of fellowship and study and memorization and amazing and that family picnic, my first paid vacation. I just want to say, yes, there are times when he even does it and it's like we're unaware that, oh, and by the way, I can do this too. Yeah. Well, the fact that you can figure living here or being here as a vacation is a miracle enough. Look at the book I just got from her. <laughs> Underline that section right there. I really want you to take some time to meditate on it. What I mean by meditate on it is 
put it in your brain and run over and over and over. And when you get still before God and the time you spend with Him, see, a lot of us, we do our Bible reading, we, we highlight the, you know, we did our, I read through the Bible in a year, we highlight our section we read, and we move on. And very few of us ever really meditate. And that's when God speaks to your heart. You have to take a small section, just meditate on it, let God speak to you, and all of a sudden things will just start to come alive. Now, I want you to really put that in mind. He brings things, as, as Christ's translation said, into existence that did not exist. Calls them to be. Calls them to be. He calls things that are not as though they were, because even though we would look at it and say, that's impossible, it would never happen. We can't do it. It's not in the budget. All these things we say in the church. And the sad thing is, is I am in the midst of this mess that's going on in the world, watching churches react just like the world. Now, don't hear me wrong. I want to make sure you hear me clearly what I'm about to say, because I'm not saying that they should never tear down their staffs. Yet... That has been the first reaction of most Christian ministries and churches and whatever. They just think, well, things are tight. We better cut down. My thing is this. Did you even ask God? What if in the midst of this, God said to a church or to a Christian ministry or to whatever, I want you to add staff. We would never even consider it. I asked Becky this question a few years ago as we were learning some of this stuff. Little did we know we were preparing for God to have us step out into a life of faith. I said, would God ever ask you to write a check when there was no money in the bank? And her first reaction was, well, I mean, he, he would want us to not, he wouldn't want us to bounce a check. That wasn't the question. I'm irresponsible. <laughs> I don't write checks if there's not money in the bank. And I, and, I, and, I, and I said, I'm not asking you to even do this. I'm asking you a simple question. Would God ever ask you to write a check if there was no money in the bank? Well, he wouldn't want us to bounce a check. That's not what I said. We're trying to figure it out. I'm telling you that to live this life of faith. You can't just go and, well, I'm going to do something stupid and jump off this balcony and trust God. You Now, if God said to you, then you understand the difference? You have to be willing to know what He said. Faith begins where God's will is known. Alright? When we talk about faith, I don't want you here, what kind of your Jesus, we're just going to sit back and just trust God and act stupid. No, I'm not talking that. But I am telling you this. There are a lot of things, and we're going to look at this, and tonight I'm going to give you some homework for next week for you to get some more of them. There are a lot of truths and a lot of promises in God's Word that we do not accept by faith. Well, we, we love to brag about how our salvation is by faith. We have trusted God for our salvation. And I say, great. When did you stop? Most of us have stopped trusting and believing God at the point of salvation. The whole idea of believing that when God said it, it will happen even though we don't see how has been lost. And we actually think we're being bad stewards if we step out when we don't see how. And over the years, we have lost this aspect. And you're going to see it become even more clear as we continue. But keep in mind, God is the one who calls things into existence, or calls things that are not as though they were, or he brings into being things that are not. Nothing is impossible with God. Did he say that he would do it? Then he will. 
And he will. Okay? I love how Paul goes on now. Look at verse 18. Against all hope. Abraham, in hope, believed, and so became the father of many nations. Just as it had been said to him, so shall your offspring be. Without weakening in his faith, he faced the fact that his body was as good as dead. I love that. Alright? <laughs> his body was as good as dead since he was about a hundred years old and that Sarah's womb was also dead. Now, before we go any further, keep in mind, not only were they this old, had they tried to have babies? Intensely. But they were unable. So it's not just that we're old. If we were young, our parts didn't work. So it's not like, okay, if we were just a little younger. This didn't work when we were young. Against all hope, Abraham said, all right, God, you said we're going to have a child. I believe you. God says, that is all I'm looking for. Oh, by the way, what was his responsibility next, if he believed God? No. I mean, we're adults. We can talk about this. He had to go through the do not disturb sign on the tent, did he not? (laughs) This is important. This is important. You don't just say, well, all right, God says we're going to have a child, and then, you know, he goes and watches TV and she does the dishes. It's not going to happen. He still has to act in faith. Now, we don't know, it's not recorded here, that Sarah heard God speak. When she was told that she was going to have, go back to what I'm getting at, when she actually heard, that's exactly what, this is what I'm saying, this is what I mean by meditating on the Word of God. Think about it. Don't just read it. Put yourself in the situation. When she heard that a year from now you're going to have a child, she laughed. So for Abraham to hear from God and then go, hey honey, God said we're supposed to. I've never tried that one. I've heard from God. He said we're supposed to do that. But he had to act in faith, believing God was going to make it work. Take the feeding of the 5,000. They didn't feed the people, but they, in faith, told people to sit down when they didn't know how God was going to do it, and they passed out very little food to over 5,000 people, and in their minds knowing it's not going to make it past the first row if God doesn't come through. But in faith, they acted like he would. Do you understand? When you hear this, thus says the Lord, here's the promise he has made, there will be the requirement of you making the first step. When we heard God say, leave the pastor and go into this ministry, we feel a lot better about it, God, if we had some engagements lined up. Or people saying, we will support you. Neither had happened, and when we resigned, there was no promise of that. All we had was, God said he would do it. Now, that he'll tell you, we wrestled with that, did we hear from God, for a while. But it wasn't until we finally came to that conclusion, he had spoken, that we then stepped in front of the church and said, we're, we have to leave. God has asked us to do this. And God has miraculously and awesomely provided. And, and, and honestly, folks, we're doing as good as we ever have financially, if not probably even better. And it's just been amazing to see how God has done it. And if you ask me to tell you how he's done it, I don't know. I don't know. Becky and I want to tell you, we have 
less right now less than five people that support the ministry monthly. And three of them do like fifty or twenty-five dollars a month. And the other one does five hundred a month, and the other one does two fifty. Do the math. Doesn't make sense. That's barely a little over eight hundred dollars a month committed coming into the ministry, and to run the whole ministry with all of everything that's involved, it's about seven to eight thousand dollars a month. I don't think I'm starving to you. <laughs> I can't tell you how he's doing it. But there's $40,000 sitting in the ministry account right now. And it will he's made a promise. We stepped out in faith. He has done it. Can't tell you how, but he has. And he will continue. What you're hearing as we talk about this is not coming from someone that's pretending. We're living I would love to see the church rise up and if there was ever a chance for the church to shine for the Lord Jesus Christ it's please don't react like every of those all those people who don't know the Lord those who have no hope alright so against all hope he believed God and look at verse 20 yet he did not waver through unbelief regarding the promise of God but was strengthened in his faith and gave glory to God now before we go any further we just talked about chapter 16 briefly, didn't we? Didn't it look like he wavered in his faith a little bit in chapter 16 when he slept with Hagar? No. Sure he didn't think God was going to do it. He just thought he had to help out. Yes. That, see, this is key. The scripture doesn't contradict itself. Well, Sarah thought he was Sarah was the one that came up with the idea. See, because Sarah, the promise to God, from God in chapter 15, the, candles. <laughs> the promise to God, from God to Abram in chapter 15 was, child from your own body. Not that he is your servant, child from your own body. I'm pretty sure Sarah said, he didn't say my body. He didn't waver in his, like you said, he didn't waver in his faith in God doing what he said he would do. He questioned the how and tried to help. Well, and going back to where it said in the deadness of Sarah's womb, she would have had physical manifestations that her womb was dead. Oh, yeah. Yep. And so, practically, he didn't say my body. He said yours. My womb is definitely dead. Maybe this is what we're supposed to do. Be careful of that. Let me show you what I'm talking about. Bookmark here. Go to Isaiah 50. Let me read verses 10 and 11. I got it. Who among you fears the Lord and obeys the word of the servant? Let him who walks in the dark, who has no light, trust in the name of the Lord and rely on his God. Let's go to verse 11 now. But now, all you who, who light fires and divide yourselves with flaming torches, Go walk in the light of your fires, and of the torches you have set ablaze. This is what you shall receive from my hand, you will lie down in torment. Okay, look closely at what he's saying here, alright? When he talks about walking in the dark here, he's not talking about walking in sin. Like in 1 John, it says if you walk in darkness, uh, if God is light and there's no darkness at all, if you walk in the dark, he's talking about sin there. Here he's not talking about sin, here he's talking about, there's been a time when you really didn't know where to go or what to do. 
which we've all been there. And if you're not, if you haven't, you will be tomorrow. All right, all right. The name who walks in the dark, who has no light, trust in the name of the Lord and rely on His God. But now, for those of you that are in the dark, but you want to light your own fires and provide yourselves with flaming torches, go ahead. He says, walk in the light of your fires and of the torches you set ablaze. This is what you'll receive from my hand. You'll lie down in torment. You want to come up with your own plan? I will let you. But it's not going to be easy, and you're going to suffer because of it. Did Abraham and Sarah suffer because of the choice to sleep with Hagar and make this other baby? Oh, yeah. It became contentious between her and her servants, and the consequences, as we've already said, continued on through history. So, Abraham, Romans 4, said he did not waver in unbelief. He didn't. He believed God was going to do it. What looked like wavering in chapter 16 was actually him trying to figure out how God was going to do it and trying to help him. Trust me, I've had those temptations as well. That's a fine line. Yes. Hearing God's line and stepping out, like you just said. I mean, yes. in reality, is that not like, uh, you know, like a fine line? Well, let me give you an example. We, we stepped out, believing, not knowing how God was going to do it, believing He would. And as you've heard me share this story before, within 24 hours, someone handed me a check for $51,000 and said, God told me to get this thing started. And within three days, we had almost $70,000 to get. It just got miraculously blessed and started the ministry. Over time, though, the money in the bank went down to very, very little. And I started thinking, maybe God wants me to send letters out to some churches asking for them to put me in their budget. Maybe God wants me to send a thing out to specific people asking them to commit to, you know what I'm saying, all these thoughts of, well, maybe God's wanting me to. And I've had to intentionally stop and say, no, God, I will intentionally go in the other direction so that you get the glory. I'm not going to do it. Unless you clearly speak, I won't. And God has done it without us doing that. Now, as if you get our newsletter, you'll see they would like to give. Here's how. But that's all that God has allowed us to do, and that's the only thing we've ever done. We've never asked anybody for specifically for any money. And until he tells us different, we won't. That, and, that's, and that's the way it works. But have we been tempted to help him? Maybe. maybe. And, and, this, and there, I'm pretty sure their intentions were good. You know, maybe this is what God meant. Maybe Because if you realize, from the time of the promise to Isaac really being born, it was 25 years. So, you know, we were blessed in the fact that God provided pretty quick. <laughs> what if they hadn't done it? Would we have been tempted to even more? So we can't fault them. But I'm just saying, be careful of trying to help God. He doesn't want your help. He doesn't need your help. Well, what was the name of the missionary that started the George Mueller. I actually just finished reading his biography, uh, autobiography, or um, official. Nothing he, without just calling. It never, God. never asked for anything. Twenty years of ministry. God provided, provided. They have, provided. they have. They uh, have. He, he, for twenty years, he started uh, orphanages over in England, and for twenty years of him working the Lord, has never, ever once asked or even told anybody what a need was. And God provided over ten thousand kids being taken care of in 20 years through those orphanages and the buildings that are there are unbelievably wonderfully nice and God provided he never told a human ever what his needs were because he said if the money doesn't come in that I'm going to take that God is that you don't want this to happen anymore because you said you would do it 
I believe you will, and if it stops, that means you've stopped supporting it anymore and you're not doing it anymore. And miraculously, back, it goes back, this happened in the 1800s, almost $2 million came in over his 20 years. Now, $2 million in 20 years in the 1800s is a lot of money. And they never missed a meal. There was a couple of times when they were sitting at the table and the meal showed up. But it was never late. And folks, I'll be honest with you, I've lived with this. When we grew up as kids, my dad was a pastor of a little church that paid him $3,000 a year. My mother didn't even have a driver's license. And she was taking care of four kids, and one, four, one or five, but at this time, there were four of us. My dad was making $3,000 a year pastoring New Chapel up in Milton, New Hampshire. And uh, many of the time, we were without food. And I remember as a kid sitting around the table with empty plates, and my dad said, God will provide. And we prayed, thanking God for this food, which there was none. We bowed our heads and we thanked him for the meal that he was going to provide. And I'm not kidding you, a knock on the door, and a farmer would come up and say, we've got some extra um, pot roast here, or beef stew or whatever, and got a couple of chickens that we don't want. And boom, it was a meal like you never had. Uh, we looked at this. Becky and I have experienced this in our first years of marriage, uh, watching everything in the house go down to nothing. I don't know if you've ever heard us tell the story. Of, we had, literally came down to our last can of Spam and a box of macaroni and cheese. And that's all there was in the house. We lived in a trailer in seminary. We had no milk. We had nothing in the cupboards. Literally bare. Nothing in the freezer. We had a can of Spam and a box of macaroni and cheese. And we were at a church that didn't have Wednesday night suppers. And it was uh, because the gymnasium was the fellowship hall, and they used them on Wednesday nights for, for the youth group. So we had dinner Wednesday before Wednesday night first service, and we mixed up the macaroni and cheese in the can of Spam, cut it up. Couldn't even use milk to make the macaroni and cheese. It wasn't the greatest meal. We mixed it with water, and we just heated that up, and that was our meal. We thanked God for it, and we ate the last of it, and we only had $25 to our name. In our checking account, there was $25. That was it. We didn't tell souls. Might not have been that much. We didn't tell anybody. We drove to church. Nobody knows that we have nothing. Prayer service is over. A Sunday school teacher, he's since gone to the Lord. He died of cancer. His name was Richard Bird. He comes up to us and he says, Could you and Becky come over to, over to our house for, for a few minutes? And I said, Sure. He goes, Well, the Sunday school class has gotten, gotten together and gotten you a gift. Sure. So we drove him over to his house and uh, he opened the front door. And as you walked into his house, the living room was covered wall to wall with groceries. Just filled the back of our pickup truck and it was like Christmas. We went from nothing to cream corn, you know, the covers and frozen turkey. And you know what's really cool about this? Those groceries were sitting on his floor in his living room before we prayed. God knows what you need before you ask.
very intense school. But we prospered so much as a, as a nation for so many years. We haven't had to live like that before. At least not for a while. Get ready. You may again. I'll show you scripturally why. We'll keep moving on though. He didn't he didn't waver in his faith. Being fully persuaded that God had power to do what he promised. Again, that's another place to highlight, underline, mark up. Being fully persuaded that God had the power to do what he promised. Our translation says that being fully assured that what he had promised, he was able to also perform. Yeah. Yeah. Again, I could ask you, is God able to do what he said he would do? Of course. Yeah, we know that. That's to be Do you really know it? Yeah. Alright. This is why it was credited to him as righteousness. The words it was credited to him were written not for him alone. I love that. But also for us to whom God will credit righteousness for us who believe in him who raised Jesus our Lord from the dead he was delivered over to death for our sins and was raised to life for our justification what is our faith in? is our faith that God's going to take care of us in heaven? no our faith is in the fact that he has said I covered your sins myself and I give proof that I did by rising from the dead I will give you righteousness if you believe that what I did covers you. And when you do, He saved you. And He gives you righteousness. Oh, you may even doubt whether or not you ever did it right. Everybody ever doubted whether or not you did it right? No, Doesn't matter. Because He already gave you righteousness and put it on your account. He's never going to take it away. Ever had times when you doubted whether or not God was really on your side after salvation? Me too. It doesn't matter. Because he put it on your account and he's never going to take it back. If you're a child of God through faith in Jesus Christ, he's given you righteousness. Let that sink in. Oh, by the way, have you sinned since you were given righteousness? (laughs) Me too. But guess what? He's already given you righteousness. He put it on your account. He's never going to take it back. Let it sink in. It's a cool, cool thing. Alright? Now, we're going to move into chapter 5. What time is it? So I know. 10 of 8. 8. Alright, we're doing good. Therefore, now he's laid this foundation. Since we have been justified through faith, past tense, declared righteous, alright? We have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have gained access by faith into this grace in which we now tiptoe. Stand. You're, you're in a grace that you stand in. Alright? And we rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. But I'm not going to go any further. I want to let the glory of God sink in first. Because we, we're going to deal with the sufferings that are coming. But let's deal with the hope of the glory of God. Go to Romans chapter 8. And look at verse 17. I actually just had God open my eyes to this this past week. Never broken this verse down like this before. What's the verse? Chapter 8, verse 17. Alright? Verse 17 says, Now if we are children, children of God, then we are heirs. Okay? Now, 
If you look closely, it's broken up, right? There's a stopping point right there. Don't go any further. Paul broke it down for a reason. What does it mean if you're an heir of whatever, whoever? What does it mean to be an heir? You're going to inherit, you're going to receive what was there. Okay? You're in the will. Now, uh, our kids are our heirs. Now, they're not at home going, woohoo, because there's not a lot probably going to be left on But if your last name is Rockefeller, right, you would probably go, woohoo, I'm an heir, right? Alright, so if we're his children, we're his heirs. Now, what does he say next? Better than Rockefeller. Heirs of God. We're heirs of, heirs of God. You're jumping ahead. Don't jump ahead. It's another section. Let that one sink in. You're an heir of God. What does that mean? You're a child. See, we, we have subconsciously or consciously been lied to to think that we're going to be in heaven because God is nice and he saved us. We don't deserve to be there. And we really don't. Yet, it's a gift. And he makes us his children, though, and when we get to heaven, and we're just going to touch on it tonight, because there's a lot more later on in our study of Romans, we are his children when we show up, and we're his heirs, and we're going to be treated as such. You're an heir of God. What does he have? What is possible for him to produce? Everything. Everything and everything. What will he withhold from you? Now, I want you to stick with me now, because we're going to, in the study of Romans, move into a realm that a lot of Baptists are afraid of. But I'm going to stick to Scripture. Those who have built the name it and claim it doctrine of, if I believe it enough, God has to do it, have taken a truth of Scripture that is there, and they have applied it, and then distorted it, is a good word, or twisted it, warped it. But because they have warped it, we have been so afraid of these people that believe God would want to bless us that we've missed a very powerful truth in the Word of God. And we're going to see that really come out through Paul's writings in Romans. But for now, I just want you to let it sink in for heaven. We'll talk about earth a little later on in our study. But for now, let it at least sink into your head for heaven. What will he withhold from you? Not only are you an heir, not only are you an heir of better than Rockefeller, you're an heir of God, you're now, or did you say that? <laughs> you're a co-heir with Jesus. Oh, by the way, how does God feel about Jesus? <laughs> the name of Jesus, every knee's going to bow, he's handed all authority over to him. But it's not just heaven. We're, we'll get to that later. Okay. <laughs> I felt we're going to let heaven sink in for now. Okay. So that, that sinks in, we're, we're going to be, yes, say that. We will come, we'll see that come out more here in Romans. Definitely, it's more than just heaven. A lot of us are missing out on it because of the fact that we think it's just heaven, if at all. But we're not, I don't want to run too fast. So the sooner it sinks in this way, the better it is that it'll, it'll be theologically sound in your head as well. All right? But look what it says. If we share in his sufferings, in order that we may also share in his what? I don't know how this is going to play out. I don't know how it's all going to work. 
I know we're going to get to heaven and we're going to worship Jesus. We can't wait to see Him and we'll see Him in His full beauty and His glory. It's going to be amazing. It's going to be, I can't even put it into human words. But somehow the Bible says we're also going to share in this glory. Somehow, some way, God is going to reward us. Maybe not at the exact same level as Jesus, because all authority has been given to Him. But at the same time, the Bible says we're going to rule and reign with Him. Marriage supper, we're going to be receiving this. Maybe it's at that point where we are finally wed, if you will, with Christ at the marriage supper of the Lamb. That Folks, I don't think we could even, well, what did Paul say? Eye has not seen, ear has not heard, nor has the mind even conceived of what God has in store for us. I can hear you. Just reading the next verse, I consider that our present sufferings are not worth comparing with the glory that will be revealed in us. I just want that to sink in for you a little bit because it will help you be able to deal with the days to come if you understand that God is for you. You have been given righteousness. It's not because you've had a good day. It's on your account. You're His child. You're in a grace in which you stand. You're at peace with God. The enemy cannot change that. He cannot alter it. But what does he do? He makes you doubt it question it or feel like it's not as really a big a deal or as lasting or powerful as it really is. And we spend a lot of our days wondering how God feels about us. You need to look the truth of God and you can't get it from just reading a verse. You have to meditate on it and let the Spirit of God really open your heart to receive this truth. Alright, now Going back to Romans chapter 5. So we re- rejoice in the hope of the glory of God, but not only so, we also rejoice in our sufferings. Because we know that our suffering produces perseverance, perseverance character, and character hope. And hope does not disappoint us. Because God has poured out His love, love into our hearts by the Holy Spirit whom He has given us. We'll stop here and really take, it, take a look at this now. Paul has said, we rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. We, because of the fact that we're in this relationship with God through Jesus Christ, in which we stand, we're at peace with God. He's credited to his, us as righteousness. Remember, this is all tied to that. Because of this, we have a great relationship with God and we look forward to that day in which we're going to be glorified. Now, but we also, he said, rejoice, not should, we rejoice in our sufferings. Why? How does this tie in with the glory of God that is to come? Because it's working out. It's working through the flesh and getting rid of the fleshly yuck to get us to the image of Christ. Okay, keep going. Yes, that's definitely part of it. But how does this tie in with our glory? How does this tie in with our reward? See, the amount of glory you receive in heaven, the amount of reward you receive in heaven, the amount of ruling and reigning you're going to have in heaven is definitely tied into obedience on this this side. The Bible is very clear that there are going to be many in heaven who have been given righteousness by God, 
But they built on that foundation wood, hay, stubble, as it says in First Corinthians chapter five, chapter three, and it was burned up. They themselves were saved, but only as one escaping through the flames. There's going to be a lot of people in heaven, but the ones who are going to be really, really, really glorified, if you will, who are going to rule and reign with Him, are going to be the ones whom, through the suffering and the perseverance. God has been allowed to do His work in such a way that they earned and received reward even more. Yeah, does that, does it, are you with me a little bit here? Uh, we need to stop and go to 2 Corinthians chapter 5. So we know that the earthen tent we live in is destroyed, and by the way, they're talking about our bodies. Okay. Yes, I can't wait. You know, some of you have pup tents. I have a four-man tent. But we know now we know that if the earthly tent that we live in is destroyed. We have a building from God, another eternal house in heaven, not built by human hands. Meanwhile, we groan, longing to be clothed with our heavenly dwelling, because when we are clothed, we will not be found naked. For while we are in this tent, we groan and are burdened because we do not wish to be unclothed, but to be clothed with our heavenly dwelling. So we're not suicidal, but we just are homesick. Okay? You know? We, we long to be clothed with our heavenly dwelling so that what is mortal may be swallowed up by life. Now it is God who has made us for this very purpose and has given us the Spirit as a deposit guaranteeing what is to come. Therefore we're always confident to know that as long as we're at home in the body, we're away from the Lord. We live by faith, not by sight. We are confident, I say, and would prefer to be away from the body and at home with the Lord. So we make it our goal to please Him, whether we're at home in the body or away from it. For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, that each one may receive what is due Him for the things done while in the body, whether good or bad. Now, we've got to deal with this. You, because of what has occurred through Jesus Christ and God giving you righteousness, are not going to be judged whether or not you get into heaven. Whether or not you go to heaven or hell has already been taken care of. You've been given the spirit of God as a guaranteeing your inheritance. You will not face the white throne judgment we see in Revelation chapter 20 where those who have rejected this offer of salvation are going to be punished and they stand before God and He casts them out of His presence into the lake of fire. But we Christians will experience the judgment seat of Christ. The being a seat, as it says in the Greek. And we're going to be judged. What we've done after salvation, done in the body, whether good. Now, it's a bad translation. Does anybody have a different translation besides good or bad? The word bad is not a good translation. A better way to translate that word bad would be useless. Okay? Here's what I want you to understand. God is not going to get you for the bad stuff you did. When you're good or bad, we think, He'll reward me for the good and He'll take some things away for the bad. That's not what this is saying. In the Greek, it's what is you're going to be rewarded for and what will have been a waste of time. Okay? The things that are going to burn up. They're going to be wasted. You are not going to be punished by God because you did really good here, Neil, but there you didn't do so good, so now we'll, you know, I'll give you five points and I'm going to take away two. That's not how it works. Okay? You're going to be judged by what you've done in the body, whether it's worth rewarding or not worth rewarding. Okay? Every one of us, as Christians, are going to experience this. After we leave this earth, we go before the judgment seat of Christ. He then meets out our reward for eternity. Again, 
How that all plays out, no one knows specifically, but I know this much. The Bible says we will rule and reign with Christ on the earth for a thousand years. We're going to be glorified with Him. We're going to be co-heirs with God. But it's also tied in with our faithfulness. Here's where the suffering should get you excited. The only way you're ever really going to get more reward at this judgment seat of Christ and more glory in that real life to come is through suffering. Because it's through the suffering it produces what God is looking for, and it is what? It's a network. Faith. Faith. See, so you don't sleep with Hagar. You trust God. You look stupid to your friends and your family. You look nuts to the, even people in the church because you believe God will do what he said he would do. But doesn't he? Well, give it, he he's given us a brain, they'll say. He wants us to use it. And they'll use all this human reasoning that seems to make sense. And you'll miss out on what God is trying to do. He's trying to produce perseverance. Perseverance produces character. And character produces hope, which is another word for confidence in God. And so when you go through your struggle, do not say, which we usually do, where's God? He's actually shaping you right now. When I was in athletics and the coach said everybody on the line, which meant it was time to run, I didn't say, where's the coach? I knew where the coach was. He was the one orchestrating the running. But I also knew that he was doing it for our best. I mean, I loved it. But I also knew that it was going to make me able to persevere, able to do a better job, able to last longer in the game, and that kind of a thing. Don't say, where's God? What did I do wrong? Folks, you're at peace with God. That He's not going to get you. Oh, yeah. If you think God has to punish you for your sin, that means what he did to Jesus on the cross was not enough. Yeah, it's a slap in the face. He fully poured out his wrath on sin, on Jesus on the cross. So therefore, even if he's shaping you, working on things that aren't the greatest and aren't making him super proud at times, it has nothing to do with him getting you for your sin or pouring out his wrath on you because he's he's not angry with you. You're at peace with God. You're in a grace in which you stand. He's already looking at you as righteous. The fact that he's working on you is because he'd actually like to add to that gift of salvation and reward you if you let him work through you. Suffering is the only way it's going to happen. That's the only way it's going to happen. You're about to say something or just breathing out loud? The analogy of refining gold. <laughs> the gold can have just skim, scrape off the impurities as it's brought up to the surface. Scraping off does not feel good. But it has to be done so that we are made the purest gold. C.S. Lewis has written a book called The Problem of Pain. And in one of the chapters, he deals with uh, an artist who's either drawing just a little cartoon sketch or a masterpiece. If he's working on a masterpiece, he will erase a lot and redraw or maybe draw a little bit harder here or work on it. And that piece of paper and that artwork would say, I wish he would just treat me like a cartoon, you know, and just doodle. But he's got something bigger in mind. And he wants to do it. And so Paul says, we not only hope in the glory of God, we also rejoice in our sufferings because we know that God is actually doing this to produce in and through us stuff that he can reward me for. That's why Paul in the prison in Philippians chapter 1 was wondering whether or not he was going to die. He didn't know. Alright? And to understand, the same Paul, and actually... 
Let's go to this real quick. Go to 2 Corinthians chapter 4. I'll talk to you about Philippians 1 as you turn there. In Philippians 1, though, he said, if you're turning to 2 Corinthians 4, I mean, but in Philippians 1, he says, I don't know whether I'm going to die or live in this prison. I don't know. If I live, it'll mean I get to be rewarded more for my fruitful labor for Christ. If I die, I get to go with you with Christ, and I'm torn between the two. I want to stay and work with you guys a little bit more. I want to go with you with Jesus. I don't know what's going to happen. But whatever happens, I'm going to, you know, I'm going to be with Jesus either way. And so his attitude was, if I'm with him, great. If I'm here and I suffer some more, I'll get rewarded for it. He wasn't sitting there saying, what's wrong? Why am I in prison? That kind of stuff. Somebody read verses 7 through 11. But we, but we have this treasure in jars of clay to show that this all-surpassing power is from God and not from us. Your heart pressed on every side, but not crushed, perplexed, but not in despair, persecuted, but not abandoned, struck down, but not destroyed. We always carry around in our body the death of Jesus, so that the life of Jesus may also be revealed in our body. For we are, for we who are alive are always being given over to death for Jesus' sake, so that his life may be in may be revealed in our mortal body. So, so then, death is at work in us, but life is in work, at work in you. Right. I'm going to ask us to do something that's kind of tricky, but I think it'll be fun. Read just the first half of all that stuff that Ken just read. Okay, we have treasure and drugs and clay. The souls passing powers from God, not, not from us. We're hard-pressed on every side. Don't read the next section. We're perplexed. We're persecuted. We're struck down. We always carry around in our body the death of Jesus. For we who are alive are always being given over to death for Jesus' sake. Sound like a good thing to sign up for? Yeah. And did anybody ever serve anybody in here serving the military? Yeah. Nobody here serving the military? Yeah. You did. Um, you went through boot camp, right? Oh, yeah. When you uh, when you did your uh, signing up. Did they advertise boot camp? <laughs> now they showed you flying planes or helicopters or sailing across the sea or climbing mountains and slaying giants with your sword and, and all this stuff. They didn't show you boot camp, did they? They made it perfect up until you got off the bus. Yeah. Even get on the bus, it was great. You said, oh man, this is great. And as soon as the bus stopped and the doors opened, it was out. Yes. They didn't advertise boot camp. Now, Jesus doesn't hide that from us. He's told us from the beginning it's going to be tough. But folks, we're not living for this life. Too many Christians today are. Too many people are living for this life. You know? That's part of the reason why I'm not too, too worried about my retirement plan. One, I don't plan on retiring. I'm going to keep preaching until I die. Second of all, I'm not planning on being here. I'm living for there. I'm living for there. But the Bible says that you will, in this world, you will have trouble. Now let's read it again, but let's read the second half. All right, we have this treasure and drug in place, so this all spasm power is from God and not from us. We're not crushed. We're not in despair. We're not abandoned. We're not destroyed. The life of Jesus may be revealed in our body. That the, his life may be revealed in our mortal body. 
God put the nation of Israel on hold. Remember? They received the hardening until the time of the end. They, because of their rejection of the Messiah, he himself even said he's going to take them and give their vineyard, if you will, to another. They were scattered to all the nations. Instead of before they were captured by one nation at a time and in captivity, this time they were scattered to all the nations. And he said in the time of the end, he'll bring them all back. But he put them on hold. Jesus comes on the scene. He quotes from Isaiah 61. It says, The Spirit of the Sovereign Lord is upon me. He's anointed me to preach good news to the poor, to release the captives, open the eyes of the blind, and to proclaim the acceptable year of the Lord. Well, what is the acceptable year of the Lord? You know, what year would that be? I always jokingly said it was 1965, because that's the year I was born. But it doesn't mean a year. It means an acceptable time period, or we now know the age of grace, or the church age. The Jews were hardened for a time, and now God has been calling Gentiles into his plan and salvation. But this time, the Bible says, will come to a conclusion when the last Gentile has been brought in. When that happens, he picks up the receiver again with the nation of Israel. Oh, and by the way, 77 equals 490 years. 490 minus... 483 leaves you how many years? One seven-year period is left for the nation of Israel. When the church age comes to an end, he gathers his bride, raptures his church. Now the Bible says that the Antichrist won't be revealed until he who restrains has been taken out of the way. That's the church, the salt and light, the Spirit of God working through the church. The Spirit of God will still be on the earth, but in working through the church will be removed. We won't know who the Antichrist is. We can argue and speculate who we think it is. We won't know. The Bible says he won't be fully revealed until after we're gone. At that time, though, the world is going to gather against Israel. The Antichrist is going to show up on the scene, and he's going to make a peace treaty with Israel. Halfway through that seven-year period, he's going to step into the temple that will have allowed them to rebuild. He rebuilds. He'll desecrate it, claim himself to be God, and he'll turn on the Jews. At the end of that time period, God himself, Jesus, comes back with us, and we're going to rule and reign on the earth for a thousand years. Jesus sets up his kingdom in Jerusalem. What we're reading about here in Revelation 6 is at the end of the church age, beginning of this last seven-year period. We see that the rider comes out on a white horse. Sure looks like Jesus, but it's not. It's the Antichrist. And then another one comes, and he makes war. And then what happens in that third seal? Things are so bad economically that it costs you a whole day's wage just to get a quarter of wheat. When it says, don't hurt the oil and the wine, most theologians, and I kind of leave in this direction, say that in this time of famine, if you will, and struggle, it won't affect the super, super rich. They'll still have enough to get by. But the average folks from middle class on down are going to be really struggling. I believe, from my understanding of the scripture, and we don't have time tonight, if you want to get into that later, just ask me, and we will at another time. I believe from my study of the scripture that what has begun in the United States and in the world, if you've been studying this at all, Japan's in a real bad condition economically. So is China, so is Russia, so is Germany, and they're all panicking to get together to come up with some world plan to fix this. I believe that dominoes have started to fall. I believe that in the next two to three years, if not sooner, we're going to see global chaos economically. We're going to see people like uh, Aminajad from Iran actually try his nuclear weapons, or Israel is going to try to destroy them before they are attacked. We're going to see chaos erupt and ensue on the earth. At some point, 
the God and Magog battle will happen because the Bible says these nations are all going to gather against Israel and God will take care of them. I think the God and Magog battle is probably going to happen after we're taken away. This is my personal opinion. There's differences of opinion on when specifically. I lean toward the God and Magog battle won't happen until after we're gone. Uh, if it does happen while we're alive, start jumping because it won't be long. Um, but the thing is this. I really don't believe we're going to see an economic turnaround. I actually think, and this is not politics, this is Bible, I also think that our stimulus plan is going to actually speed up the process. To be honest with you. Now, with that great news, no, this is is intentional. I am serious when I said, don't react like the rest of the world who don't have any hope. Here's your homework. God has made promises to us in this book. Many of them. I want you to find at least two or three that you can believe by faith that He said it and He'll do it. Even if it makes no sense and I guess all hope you don't know how He's going to do it. I want you to show me some scriptures that are promises of God that you can hang on to in these days coming where you can honestly be looking at your neighbors when they say, aren't you worried? And you can honestly say, without sounding like a freak, no, I really believe God's going to do what he said he would do. Well, where do you... Could you give me reason for the hope that lies within you? Wouldn't it be nice to have somebody ask us? <laughs> Bible talks will always be ready to give reason for the hope that lies within you? That's all right. It's Scott thinking Jim should be done by now, right? Tell <laughs> <laughs> him almost done. Tell him he can close us in prayer if he wants to be <laughs> but, uh, Folks, it actually isn't scary news. I don't, I, I'm actually getting excited because I'm ready to see the church wake up. Jim, it's good to be with you. I'm, I'm telling you because all around you hear people say, Scary, scary, scary. I'm scary. And I'm thinking, and I am thinking like you. Wow, this is pretty exciting because you can trust God and these things. And this is so delightful because she's been and Debbie have encouraged me to memorize Psalm 91. And it's like, wow, this is praise the Lord for this. Exactly, yeah. Wow. Yeah. Keep excited, too. That's exactly what we're talking about. The Bible is just full of it. And there's a lot of out there, folks. And it'll be fun to really look at them next week. So bring some paper with you next week. You're probably going to want to write down some of everybody else's promises from God. But, hey. I don't know the timetable. I don't know how it's all going to play out specifically. But I do know this much. God's word is pretty clear. What has begun is going to culminate in us being taken. His last seven with the nation of Israel. And if you're interested in that kind of stuff, we'll get into it. There's a lot. There's a lot of that. And that's what my intention was in the study of Romans. To not just do a study of Romans, but apply Romans to where we are today. It's time that we as Christians will die. And I'm excited about it. We always read about the book of Acts and how on fire they were for the Lord. And we always want to try to make our churches back like the original church. You ever heard that? Let's go back. But we leave out the fact that that only happened in the midst of intense suffering and persecution. We have the opportunity now to do it again. May I share something? Please do. Yeah. In 1983, my sister was dying of cancer. And my... I was working at the Delora, and my mom called, and she said, if you want to see your sister, she's not a black mom. So I talked to my boss, left, left school, and headed up South Texas home. 
my best car radio stays on WCI all the time. And as I drove home, um, there was a pastor on WCIF preaching on Romans 5, the first 10 verses, 9 10 verses. But he was reading that whole thing as I went home. And I thought, that is so true. So, um, my sister died, and I asked the pastor who had her funeral if he would use this scripture. And he was happy to, and, and it, was, it was really neat. Well, in 1988, my dad was dying of liver cancer that he only knew he had for about two or three months. And he had been a real um, horse trader type person. Didn't think that he was good enough for the Lord ever to save him. We prayed for him for years. We begged him to become a Christian. He never would. And finally, just before he died, uh, I was with him one day. And I said, did you ever think about the fact that God may have not taken you with a heart attack so that you'd have time to accept him? And I went to Romans 5 and read that part to him. And um, he started crying and pushed me out of the room. And, and a couple of weeks later, he and a friend of his called and said, guess what, your daddy's just accepted the Lord from that time. <laughs> and so at his funeral, I asked the pastor to please use that scripture. And he did. So that, that this particular scripture tonight has meant a lot of time awesome. in my mind. And I said, I can't wait to get back at it. There's still so much more, as you know, all the way down to verse 10. And I'll and actually read this stuff through their homework. <laughs> There's some wonderful promises in there that you can hang on to. Some wonderful promises in there. So that's awesome. That's cool. But it was such a blessing for you, for you to be there and then to go to the fifth chapter. And I got a date there that says, Daddy Webb, 711 88. And one here that says, Mary's funeral. Wow. 1983. Mm-hmm. So special to me. Yes. Yeah. Anybody else before we wrap up? We're going home. I can't wait. <laughs> Isn't it cool? You find yourself homesick forever? How in the world can you be homesick for a place you've never been? Because our hearts are there. Your spirit. Remember? We're already seated in the heavenly realms. The spirit of God lives within you. You've been there in a sense. You're homesick for a place you've never been. I can't wait. can't wait. But until then, fruitful labor, the Bible says. Fruitful labor. And I'll be rewarded some more. But I'm ready to go. I'm ready to go. We're so encouraged by Paul, aren't we? You know, either way. Either way, Lord. Good. It's all good? Yeah. We pray for us. Father, again, I thank you for this chance to hang out together. And Lord, I thank you for what you're doing in this room. Lord, I thank you that uh, I can just come in here and just let you just kind of take us where you want us to go and other people have a chance to kind of share things you're showing them as well. And Lord, when we walk out of here, we've been encouraged by you through each other. And Lord, I thank you for the fact that your word tells us to not uh, avoid meeting together as such as the habits of some. But do it all the more as we see the day approaching. And Lord, we see it approaching. It looks like it could happen tomorrow. It looks like it could happen tonight. It might be another year. It might be another two. We don't know. But things are happening rapidly. Things are escalating around the world. And Lord, these things that your word has said were going to happen in the last of the last days are happening on the news just about every single night. We are looking for your return. And we do pray, come quickly, Lord Jesus. 
But we also understand that if it appears that you're slow, you're not slow as some people count slowness, but you're wanting others to come to know you. So Lord, please, if we believe you're really coming back and that could happen this week, uh, may we have the, the desire and the unction to go talk to that neighbor that you've laid on our heart or a family member that doesn't know you. May they get that opportunity like you gave Rita's dad. That extra little bit of grace to say yes to Jesus. Pray this in your name. Amen. Amen.